Here in the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find where the Lord chose 12 men out of all his disciples who would be known as apostles. And he gave those men, those apostles, a commission that's found in Matthew chapter 10. This is prior to his crucifixion, of course. And then he gave them another commission just before he left this world, just before he departed this earth to go be with the Father back in glory, that is, to go back to heaven. He gave them a commission there. He gave them two commissions. Oftentimes, the second commission is referred to out here in the religious world as the Great Commission. But I want to say to you this morning, there's nothing Jesus ever said or did that was not great. Everything he said was great. Everything he did was great. And the commission that he gave, first of all, before his crucifixion, was also a great commission. I'd like to take a look at these two commissions this morning by comparison and the things that's contained in it, and also see the significance of what the Lord did in choosing these men. Now, if you turn to Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, you find where the Lord went into a high mountain alone, and he called unto him, them, unto him whom he would. Now, when you read the Bible, it, it pays to read a little slow, steady but slow. We notice this expression, he called unto him whom he would. That shows the sovereignty of God in that expression. They didn't volunteer. They didn't come to him, but he called unto him whom he would and ordained 12 men to be with him and to preach the gospel of the kingdom and gave them power over unclean spirits and also over devils and to heal all manner of sickness and disease. We notice the expression, all manner of sickness, all manner of disease. There was not any sickness or disease that Jesus couldn't conquer. All manner of sickness, all manner of disease, you see. So now, of all the disciples, the word disciple, and you know, when computers came out, uh, computers came out with a language of their own, right? I mean, some really odd words, like mouse. What's a mouse got to do with a computer, right? Well, that's that little thing you move around. I don't know why they come up with the word mouse for that. But anyway, you have to learn the terminology uh, in the computer world to, to understand and communicate, etc. Well, to understand the Bible, you need to understand the language of the Bible. A disciple. It comes from the word discipline. It means a learner, a pupil, a student. A student of someone or something is a disciple. In this case, we're talking about disciples of Jesus. A disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is someone who hears the message of the Master, receives the teachings of the Master, and then makes application of the teachings. It's not just a curiosity thing. It's not just an intellectual exercise. When you're taught what the Bible, you know, teaches us, then it's important we make application. A lot of people don't understand the important role of discipleship. Discipleship is different than relationship. All of God's people have a relationship with God, but not all of God's people enter into discipleship. And we'll get more into that perhaps a little bit later this morning. So we find the Lord selects, chooses 12 men from among his disciples, and they become what we know as apostles. 
Now, an apostle is a disciple, but not all disciples were apostles, only these 12. The number 12 is an ecclesiastical number. And you'll find where there were more men who took the title of apostle than just 12, but it was always known as 12. The Lord Jesus Christ, for example, in Hebrews 3.1, Paul's let us consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he is the apostle and the high priest of our profession. There were high priests in the Old Testament, but he's the only one called the great high priest. And here are 12 apostles, but Jesus Christ is the apostle of the apostles. The word apostle means sent. Well, Jesus was sent from heaven, wasn't he? John 6, 38 and 39, Jesus said, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, all he hath given me. I shall lose nothing to raise up again at the last day. Now we read back again in Mark 3, 13 and 14, where he went to the high mountain, called unto him whom he would, and chose 12 men and ordained them. When you notice, he ordained them. He set them apart specifically for a specific reason. And then we have their names given to us. And we come over to Matthew chapter 10. You're going to find where the Lord is going to give a commission to these 12 men. Now, some of these men are very familiar names to us, such as James and John and Peter and Andrew. Peter and Andrew were brothers. James and John were brothers. And in fact, these four men were partners in, a, in the fishing trade of that day. Uh, Zebedee's father apparently had a very success, successful fishing business, and his two sons, James and John, and Peter and Andrew, worked together. That's where the Lord went to them and told them to forsake their nets and come and follow him. He didn't make them become fishers of men. And the Lord nicknamed James and John the sons of thunder. And if you search out their lives, you'll understand why he gave them that name. They, they want, on one occasion, they wanted the Lord to bring fire down from heaven to consume some people, which the Lord rebuked them for doing such. But he called them the sons of thunder. He nicknamed, or nick, nicknamed, he gave a surname under Simon. That surname was Peter or Cephas. You go to John 1, 42, you'll find where the Lord said, And thou, Simon, thou art Cephas. The word Cephas slash Peter means a stone. So we had that information about them. Most of these disciples were fishermen. We don't know the trade and profession of all of them. But in looking at these 12 men, we notice whom the Lord did not choose. The Lord did not choose the highly educated. The Lord did not choose uh, those who were well known. He did not choose those in positions of authority and power. He bypassed all of them. See, that, that's where a man would have went to. But God's ways and his thoughts are much above ours as the heavens are above the earth. God does things in a manner and way that you have to, when it's all said and done, we'll have to give him the praise and the glory and the honor for it. Remember in Acts chapter 4, I believe it is, where those whom the apostles were preaching to, the Bible says they took notice of these men, that these were ignorant and unlearned men, but they also took notice of these men spent time with Jesus. That made the difference, didn't it? They spent time with Jesus. When he didn't say they were unintelligent men. There's a difference in intelligence and ignorance. Will Rogers said we're all ignorant just on different subjects. Amen and amen. Not a person in his congregation here this morning that knows everything about everything, right? 
Uh, there are certain subjects that we're ignorant on. That doesn't mean you're not an intelligent individual. There's a lot of difference between intelligence and ignorance. The most intelligent man who's ever lived might be the most ignorant man also that ever lived, you see. So they took notice these men were ignorant, unlearned. In other words, they hadn't met their standards. Uh, they were not chosen from the highly educated and skilled, so to speak, out here in man's world. But they also took notice that they had been with Jesus. So here's the kind of men that Jesus chose. All right. So we come here to Matthew chapter 10. And we find where the Lord lists again here. They're listed, these 12 men are listed several different times in the four gospels for us. And we find where the Lord tells these 12 men to do something. He says, go and preach the kingdom of heaven. Or the, preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, he's going to call on them to do something that man has not done prior to this time. Now, I want you to stay with me here. In the Old Testament day, you had prophets. Prophets were not like New Testament preachers. Prophets represented God to the people. And there were false prophets in that day, along with true God-called prophets. And the way you could tell the difference is if a prophet stated forth a prophecy and it did not come to pass, that means he was a false prophet. Now, sometimes prophets issue out a prophecy that have both a short-term and long-term fulfillment to it. If he gave a long-term fulfillment, he would die long before that would come to pass. So you might say, well, how in the world then would know if he was a true prophet or a false prophet? If he gave a long-range prophecy, I can assure you it also had a short-term fulfillment because that was a requirement. And the false prophets, when they gave a prophecy and didn't come to pass, they were identified and uh, everything as a false prophet. Those prophets would bring a message from God to the people. And uh, this word preach, by the way, is found three times in the Old Testament. It means uh, to, to herald or to cry out. Back in uh, biblical days, in days, you know, in the Old Testament day, uh, obviously there was no televisions where people couldn't, could get the news. They lived in better times than we do, right? There were no televisions. And there were no radios, and there was no internet, no computers, etc. So how did you get your news? Somebody came walking down the streets and just herald out or cried out a message. Now you see this over in the book of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 3, the Lord has called Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh. And he's to go to Nineveh, and he's to preach the preaching that God has sent him to preach. Notice this. As you go to Nineveh, you preach the preaching that I've sent you to preach. And the Bible says that Jonah cried out as he went into the city of Nineveh. He went down the streets of Nineveh crying out. Well, what was his cry? It says, in 40 days, the city of Nineveh shall be overthrown. I wouldn't call that good news, would you? I wouldn't call that glad tidings. But normally in the New Testament day, the gospel is defined as good news and glad tidings is what the preachers proclaim to the Lord's people. Well, here Jonah is preaching a message that's not good news and glad tidings, but it is a message from heaven. In 40 days, the city of Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not good news. But the next verse tells us something unexpected, perhaps. It says, but the people believed God. All right. God sends a message through his prophet Jonah. The people believe God. And the people repent from the king right on down to the least, from the greatest to the least. When they repented, we find at the end of that chapter, 
where God likewise repented. Now, God doesn't repent like man repents. Normally, we think about repentance is that you make a turn from the direction you're going. And that's what repentance is. It's a change. It begins inwardly that is reflected outwardly. But the word repent, as it replies to God, means to sigh. Just like uh, in the book of Genesis, when he repented God, he'd made man to begin with because of all the wickedness and the evil that was on the earth. It means God just, he couldn't believe what he saw, in other words. Have you ever done that? Have you ever witnessed a scene or something and all you can just do is just, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I can't believe what I'm hearing. Well, that's what the word means as it relates to God in the book of Genesis. And as it relates to God here in the book of Jonah. When God saw them repent, had they not repented, then exactly the message that Jonah sent would have come to pass. They would have been overthrown in 40 days. Now, God's response to them repenting was not good news to Jonah. Jonah didn't like that. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh to begin with. And when he got there and he preached and they repented, he later on says, I knew that's what you'd do, Lord. You know, when they repented, I knew you'd have mercy and be long-suffering and you would spare them. Well, aren't you glad God does that? <laughs> aren't you glad God is long-suffering? Aren't you glad that God uh, has pity upon us and God spares us and doesn't uh, always issue out exactly what we totally deserve? I'm thankful we have a God like that. If it was not, we'd all been consumed a long time ago. So he tells these apostles, we go back to Matthew chapter 10, to go preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as you go, he says, heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and raise the dead and cast out devils. Notice the, what these men were able to do. Okay, now, put yourselves in the shoes of these men here. Here you are, uh, one day as uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they go to the Sea of Galilee, and now they are uh, fishing, and the Lord comes along and commands them to forsake their nets and follow him. He'll make them become fishers of men. He chooses them whom he would, here part of the twelve, and now all of a sudden, they're going to preach, no longer fish, but preach. And they got the power to heal the sick. They have the power to cleanse the lepers. They have the power to raise the dead. Now, they didn't have the power within themselves. You understand that, I trust. The power still came from God, but God showed his power through these men. And we see this taking place as these men went forth in their ministry. So we see the men that God chose, and therefore we see who he did not choose. And we see why he chose them. He chose them to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he told them also, in addition to preaching the gospel of the kingdom, you're to heal the sick, you're to cleanse the lepers, you're to raise the dead, you're to cast out devils and unclean spirits. And once again, remember, he gave them power over all manner of disease, all manner of sickness, not just some, but whatever it was, they had the power of it through the power that God used when he used it through them. Now, we do not have apostles today. Let me emphasize this. You may hear somebody sometimes call themselves an apostle, well, that don't mean they're an apostle because they call themselves the apostle, does it? I might tell you I'm the president of the United States. Does that make it true? <laughs> now, you might wish I was. I don't know, <laughs> but I'm glad I'm not. You, know, you can say anything just because you say it doesn't make it true. <laughs> but it seems like if people hear somebody say something, they just automatically believe that's the truth. If they read something in print, they automatically think it's true. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be printed. I hope you're not that naive here this morning. Untruth can be printed just like truth can. 
Untruth can be proclaimed just like truth can. You've got to study God's Word to know the difference, you see. So here are these men. They're the only apostles. The last apostle to live on this earth was the Apostle John, who died around 95 A.D. He's the one who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. He was on the Isle of Patmos when he, uh, God gave him, uh, you know, by inspiration to write the book of Revelation. His brother was the first apostle to die and the first martyr of the apostles to die and James back in uh, Acts chapter 12. John's the last apostle to die. He's the only one according to the Bible and also history and tradition, the last one to die and the only one to die a natural death. Now the death of other men like Peter and Paul are not recorded in the scripture. We have tradition and we have some history and tradition, but it always pays to read the Bible and give heed to that rather than tradition and speculation in history, right? The Bible wanted us to know how Paul died. It told us how Paul died. It, it, he told us how James died, but it doesn't tell us how Paul died or Peter died. Now, I think there's some reliability to some history that Peter died in Rome and Paul died in Rome, Paul being beheaded and Peter being crucified. I don't doubt that's not the truth, but you never prove it by the Bible. So here are these 12 men, and they have a gospel commission. And in that commission, they're to go out preaching the gospel of the kingdom, but God gives them the power to be able to do these miraculous things. And then the Lord tells these 12 men, take no gold, no silver, and no brass in your purses. Don't take any money with you. I wouldn't advise taking a trip without at least a credit card on you and cash. I try to tell my children there are still some places that you have to have cash and top hogs, one of them. You better not go eat at Top Hog without cash or a check on you. You won't. Well, they'll let you eat and you bring it back later. They'll trust you. Or they might let you wash dishes or whatever. But anyway, if you go there, no credit card, no debit card, cash or check. You can't help a little girl out selling lemonade if you don't have a little cash on you, right? So it pays to have a little cash on you. Then you don't have to dash to the ATM store or facility or whatever. So far in my life, I've managed not ever one time going to an ATM, and I'm getting along all right. It's just a waste of time. But anyway, where were we? All right, take no gold nor silver nor brass in your purses or script. The word script means bag. Bag would hold natural provisions. Don't take that with you. Don't take two coats with you. Don't take shoes with you. And don't take staves and his staff with you. For the workman is worthy of his meat. So how are they going to live? They're going to be supported by those they're ministering to. As you read this and read the same account in the Gospel of Luke, you'll find there were houses they would go into and some houses received them and some houses didn't receive them. If a house did not receive them, they would leave that house and shake the dust of that house off their feet. If that house received them, it says, you sit down in that house and you eat whatsoever they put before you. I was taught that as a little child, you eat what's set before you. You didn't, if I was growing up and I told my mother I didn't want what was before me, I'd just miss a meal. I just wouldn't have anything to eat because she sure wasn't going to pacify me. No, sir. And so I've always practiced eating what was put before me. The only exception I've ever had to that is when I was eating in this lady's house one time who was an outstanding cook. And she had a table spread from one end to the other. After church one day, we went there. But I saw some rutabaga I'd never tried before. And I tried it. I couldn't swallow it. I just couldn't do it. When she wasn't looking, it, it came out. I mean, it was pretty. It looked delicious. It looked uh, uh, like it'd be something good. But I just couldn't take it. And I hadn't tried a, bit, a bite of that stuff since. 
Now I'm, I'm <laughs> I can eat most anything put before me, but don't just don't give me any rutabaga, okay? I'm trying to give you advance warning out here. No rutabaga. <laughs> but they were told to eat what was set before them, and their peace came upon that house. Now they also were told by the Lord that they would be, he said, beware of men for they shall beat you and scourge you and bring you up before others, you know, the, the courts of men. But it says, take no thought what ye shall say for which shall be given you in that same hour. Now you see, this chapter 10 is for me to read and study, but it's not to me. Those are not instructions to me as a New Testament minister. I'm to give a lot of thought before I say something to you. It says, for he, the Spirit of God, shall speak through you. There, this was a, an exceptional situation we have here where the apostles didn't have the New Testament to study. It says, take no thought what you should say, for it shall be given you in that self-same hour. At that very time they needed a thought, the very time they needed a word, the very time they needed an expression, God gave it to them. I have heard men try to make a New Testament application of that to their own New Testament ministry. It's not to you, it's for you. There's a lot of difference in that. And that'll help you rightly divide the word of truth when you understand that principle. The Lord said, beware of wolves and sheep's clothing. He said, if you go out, you be wise as serpent and harmless as doves. These are instructions that God gave these 12 men in this first gospel commission here. But now let's go back up to something really important. The Lord tells them where to go and what not to go. He says, Go not among the Gentiles, the way of the Samaritans, but go ye to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You got three categories of people here. You got Gentiles, you got Samaritans, and you got the household of Israel that he says is lost. Doesn't mean they were lost eternally. They were lost in a different way. Hope to say more about that later, perhaps. But who are these people then? Go not among the Gentiles. A Gentile basically is somebody that's not a full-blooded Jew. We're all Gentiles here this morning. Well, in that particular day, the gospel didn't go to the Gentiles. The Lord said, don't go among the Gentiles. And it says, don't go among the Samaritans. The Samaritans uh, had, uh, they, they had in their blood, they had, they had Jewish blood and Gentile blood. They were kind of, you know, they were not full-blooded Jews, not full-blooded Gentiles. They were Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Lord said here, don't you go among the Gentiles in the way of the Samaritans. Question, what's the purpose of the gospel? What are the benefits are of the gospel? The Gentile Samaritans were not going to enjoy them at this time. In the book of Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul said, about verses 15, 16, 17, he says, as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you, which at Rome also, for the gospel is the power of God and the salvation of everyone that believeth." It's preached first to the Jew, then to the Greek, Greek being Gentile. Some people in their minds, the gospel, the utility of the gospel, has to be carried out in order for somebody to be saved from hell to heaven. If that's the case, the Lord sent a lot of Gentile Samaritans to hell because they didn't hear the gospel. So we need to understand what is the purpose of the gospel. What is the gospel? What's the purpose of the gospel? Right? To understand this. Well, the Lord certainly didn't do that. But in the beginning, see, the Jewish people were the only people who had the ceremonial law. 
to begin with in the Old Testament day. All nations outside the Jewish people, they didn't have the tabernacle, they didn't have the temple, they didn't have the ceremonial law, the moral law, or the uh, civil law. It was all given to one people, the nation of Israel. So when the Lord comes on the scene, the nation of Israel was in a lost condition because they had added many things to the written word of God. Had, they had omitted many things to the written word of God and they were walking according to their own guidance. So the Lord says, do not go among the Gentiles, the way of the Samaritan, but go your other to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who you're to go to. All right, and that's what the Lord told those disciples who he called to be his apostles in that first gospel commission. Now we come over here on the other side of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, just before he goes into glory. And we find the Lord, the last act he does. Now two weeks ago I spoke to you on the last words of Joseph. Last Sunday I spoke to you on the last words of the angels, uh, you know, unto the shepherds. Now I want to get to the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke to his apostles before he left this earth here. The Lord tells the apostles, we go to Matthew 28, beginning in verse 19. And the Lord said, all power is given to me, both in heaven and of earth. First thing he told them. Then it says, go and preach the gospel. It says, uh, go and teach all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'll go with you all the way to the end of the world. Now let's read what Mark has to say about it. Mark's going to say, going to give us the same information, but he's going to word it a little bit differently. Go to Mark 16, 15 and 16. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Go and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. We don't have contradictory statements here. We just have two statements, one from Matthew and one from Mark, that blend together. The Lord says through Mark, he says, go and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, let's use a little common sense in the Bible too here. But they both go together most of the time. Okay. Little common sense in the Bible here. Every creature. From time to time, I try to tell you, when you read the word all, read the word every, read the word world in particular, it's usually used in a restrictive sense. Very seldom is it used without exception. Preach the gospel to every creature. You think a rabbit knows anything about the gospel? You think a cat and a dog, if they hear one of my sermons on CD in the house, lift up an ear in attention? They're creatures, aren't they? The Lord said, preach the gospel to every creature. But what is the Lord's people? In 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, the apostle Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new what? New creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Galatians 6 and 15, the Apostle Paul said, For neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature in Christ. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, before which he hath ordained that we should walk in them. When you're born of the Spirit of God, you are made what? A new creature. Now you have ears to hear, now you have a heart to understand. Now you have eyes to see, spiritual eyes, eyes of faith, ears to hear. Why do you think the Lord concluded so many of his messages like this? That him that hath ears to hear, let him hear. What a strange expression if you don't understand what I'm saying about it. If you understand what I'm saying, then you'll know what the Lord was saying. 
He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Everybody didn't have ears to hear. They all had these ears. I'm not talking about hearing an external sound. I'm talking about hearing a message, hearing a sound that can be heard in a spiritual sense. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man, the man without these ears I'm talking to you about, the natural man receiving not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. You can preach the gospel all day long to a natural man and he, he won't uh, be moved by it uh, unless he gets mad at you for taking up his time. So we're dealing with spiritual creatures, aren't we? A new creature in Christ. Preach the gospel to every creature. All right, going to all the world. What world's under consideration here? When you read the word world in the Bible, generally speaking, if it doesn't have reference to the creation, generally speaking, it's talking about a people. If it's talking about people, it's talking about a people outside the nation of Israel. It's talking about all people outside the nation of Israel. That's the world. Remember back in Matthew chapter 10, the Lord restricted the gospel to the lost sheep of the household of Israel only. But here in Mark chapter 16, he's going to remove that restriction. And they're going to have the freedom and liberty to preach to Gentiles and Samaritans. Wherever the Spirit of God opens up a door of opportunity, they now can preach the gospel, you see. That restriction has been removed. It's been taken out of the way. Okay, let's take a look at that word world just for a moment as it applies here. In Matthew chapter 24, you're going to find a chapter that is about as misinterpreted uh, as any chapter in the Bible. Most of chapter 24 in the book of Matthew is about the, seven, uh, about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's not about the end of time. That chapter opens up with the disciples showing the Lord the buildings of the temple. They're, they're impressed by the temple. It was impressive. From man's point of view, it was very impressive. And that's what they're impressed with. The buildings, the temple, and everything else. You know what the Lord said? He said, the day is coming when there shall not be left one stone upon another of all these buildings. wonder what they thought about that. Well, they go to the Mount of Olives from there, and they ask the Lord one question in three parts. They said, Lord, tell us, when shall these things be? And the third part of that question is, and when shall the end of the world come? The word world there means age. A-G-E, age, a dispensation of time. Not the end of time, a dispensation of time. When shall the end of the world be? The Lord begins to give them signs of things that they uh, can observe. That's going to indicate when those, that time is going, is going to approach. Then he comes down a little bit further. And he says, then shall the gospel of the kingdom be preached in all the world. And then shall the end of the world come. That word there means age. Now, I want to go to Hebrews 9.26. In Hebrews 9.26, the apostle Paul says, concerning the Lord and Jesus Christ and his priesthood. He said, for since then... Must he have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world that the Lord offered one offering for sins and sacrifices. Well, when did he make that offering sacrifice? It was 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? But the Apostle Paul said he did it at the end of the world. He did, the end of that age, that Jewish age. 
The Mosaical law came to an end. Christ fulfilled every aspect of the Mosaical law. He crossed every T and dotted every app. He completely finished it and completely fulfilled it. That world came to an end. In 70 AD, the Titus of the Roman army came into Jerusalem and completely destroyed it, and there was not left one stone upon another, just like Jesus said. The end of the world came. It's not talking about the end of time. It's talking about the end of an age. Now let's take a look at... Uh, I had some glasses in here a while ago. Here they are. <laughs> I want to take a look at an expression found in the book of Romans chapter 10 and verse 18. Romans chapter 10 and verse 18. Paul asked the question, but I say, have they not heard... Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. He's talking about the apostles. The world under consideration here in that day, the known world, the nations outside the Jewish uh, uh, people, they, the gospel was preached unto them. That was fulfilled in the days of the apostles. It's not the end of time, it's the end of an age. So the Lord tells them, go and preach, go and teach all nations. Now, not just the Jews, but Gentiles, Samaritans, teach all nations. And after they're taught, they're to be baptized. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then you're to continue to teach them. And that's what our experience should be like. You come to the house of God, to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to His church. And you're the teachers of God, the true teachers of God's sovereign grace. The truth about God, the truth about man, the truth about unconditional election and predestination and the effectual call of the Lord's family and the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. And your heart rejoices. The truth makes you free. And now you take up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism. Is your education complete? Do you come out of the water and up here I give you a diploma? I said, you graduated. <laughs> I think some people believe that. I think some people believe, well, I've graduated now. I've been baptized. I know you just got started. You're in the first grade. <laughs> I might give you a, a primer completion. <laughs> you will never graduate. You're to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth from this moment forward until you leave this world to be with the Father. And the more you learn, the more you're instructed, the more you understand, the more you apply, the happier your life is going to be, the more God's going to be glorified, and the more comfort and peace and consolation you're going to experience here in this world. Isn't that right? Your experience tells you that, does it not? I know it does. I know it does. So, he said, go and teach all nations. There's some teaching up to a certain point, point. then there should be some obedience. Follow the Lord in gospel baptism. Then you continue to teach. And notice what he says, teaching them to observe. That word observe means to hold to, it means to guard, it means to keep. When you are taught the truth, that truth becomes something that you hold on to, you keep and you guard it. You don't let it slip out of your fingers, you don't let it slip out of your mind. Uh, you don't let this world distract you to where it begins to be diluted from your thinking. Hebrews 2.1, let us give the more earnest heed to things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Do you have trouble with a slipping mind? 
Have you ever had trouble with a slipping transmission? Not a good feeling, right? Just, uh, this thing may come apart at any time here. <laughs> Every once in a while I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how did I let that, what, slip my mind? Well, I'm hoping to keep a non-slipping mind as long as I live here in this world. God will bless me with it. If God enable me to keep my mind, sound mind, clear mind, active mind, I'll be most appreciative. I hope you'll pray for me for that. And I'm all, in all seriousness about that. I don't want to get in the slipping mind sickness. Let us give them more earnest heed to things which you've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. All right? We're to hold on to the truth. We're to keep the truth, and we are to guard the truth. The truth should be that important to us. Regardless of what the world thinks about it, we need to thank God for the truth of sovereign grace every single day that we live. Give God the praise and the honor and the glory for foreknowing us and predestinating us before time ever began to be conformed to the image of His Son. Give God the thanks and the praise and the glory for sending His Son into this world here to live in our place and to die in our place and to accomplish what we could not accomplish ourselves, to redeem us and reconcile us and justify us and one day bring us home to glory. That's why I'm here this morning. I'm trying to preach it to you. <laughs> Let's go to Mark's gospel just for a moment. Go and preach, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I've tried to establish already that was accomplished in the lives of these apostles. And that does not diminish the importance of having the desire and the burden to spread the gospel in Jesus Christ according to God's blessings. I'm thankful that our website and the streaming device is heard all around this globe that we live on, all around this world, and we get response from various nations. I'm carrying on, a, still carrying on a conversation with my good preacher friend that first uh, uh, got in touch with and lived in London, England. He now is in the Philippines. He said he's got his brother listening to me. He's got his nephew listening to me. And anybody else that'll listen to him, he's got them listening to me. <laughs> and so I'm thankful for that. Very thankful for that. The gospel indeed is, is being available all around the world. But I'm telling you, the commission Christ gave to those apostles was fulfilled and carried out during the times and lives of those apostles. The known world of that day heard the gospel preached. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now I want to pause here just for a second. I want to give you several reasons why the preaching of the gospel is so important. I've already told you what it does not do, but I want to tell you what it does do. In, Matthew, in Luke chapter 9, there's a man who comes to the Lord. He says, Lord, I'll follow you where you go, but let me first go and bury my father. All right, listen carefully. What did the Lord say to that man? He said, you go let the dead bury the dead, and you come and follow me and preach the gospel of the kingdom. The Lord was not minimizing the importance of taking care of our loved ones when they die. The Lord wasn't speaking against burying our loved ones when they pass away. The Lord established it. Let the dead bury the dead. The Lord believed in burial, by the way. All right? He believed in burial. But let the dead bury the dead. Now, how can the dead bury the dead? Well, I think you have to understand here that the dead that's going to bury the dead are not really dead. 
like the dead they're going to bury. <laughs> they are dead, but not like the dead corporally or naturally they're going to put it in the ground. And in the book of 1 uh, Timothy 5, I think verse 8, you're going to find where the apostle introduces us the subject of widows who widows indeed. And he's going to give a contrast between a widow indeed and a widow who lives according to this world here, who's not a widow indeed. She's a widow, but she's not a widow indeed. He says, she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she lives. How in the world can you be dead and alive at the same time? That verse says here, you can't. Here's a woman who's living according to the pleasure of the flesh. She's not a widow who's a widow indeed. She, therefore, she is dead to the things of God while she's breathing air and still living. There's somebody that's dead who's alive who's going to bury the dead. Those who are dead to spiritual things, those who don't have the same interests, those who can take care of those affairs because he wants this man to follow him and preach the gospel. That ought to tell us how important it is, shouldn't it? Another thing I know to tell you how, why I know the gospel is very, very important is because that's what the Lord told them to do. If the Lord said do it, it's got to be important, right? You think the Lord ever told somebody to do something unimportant? You think the Lord ever told somebody to do something that didn't mean a hill of beans? No, he did not. If the Lord told somebody to do something, it was important. The Lord never said anything that wasn't important. The very fact he sent him to preach the gospel shows how important it is. The very fact he tells this man, let the dead and bury the dead, shows how important it is. So let's go back over here. And take a look at Mark chapter 16 just for a second. Going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. What kind of salvation is under consideration here? 1 John 5 and 1 says, Whoso believe that Jesus the Christ is born of God. A person that has the capability of believing the gospel has already been born of the Spirit of God has already, my friends, experienced that the sal eternal salvation, so it's not talking about that. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now, there's two parts of this, belief and baptism. Is there a salvation in baptism? 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 says there is. In 1 Peter 3, and 20, 20 and 21, the apostle Peter tells us about an Old Testament story concerning Noah and the ark and the flood. While the Lord was long-suffering in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, whereby eight souls were saved by water, whereunto baptism is a like figure, where is a like figure unto baptism, which doth, all, which doth now also save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but answering a clear conscience toward God. The apostle Peter is saying there's something about Noah and the ark that's very similar to baptism. There's something about baptism very similar to Noah and the ark. So what is it? Well, first of all, baptism is an ordinance of the church. It's put into the church not by men, but by God. The ark was not dreamed up by Noah. The ark was an ordinance of God, a design of God that came from God. They both came from heaven, right? The ark, the design of it, everything about it. Baptism, everything about baptism, true baptism, gospel baptism, water baptism, didn't come from men, it came from God. Noah and his family go into the ark. Notice, all adults, no infants. The Bible does not support infant baptism or sprinkling. 
or being christened. Baptism is for believers. You've got to be old enough to believe and make a profession of faith, in other words. When he put them on that ark, the waters broke up from beneath. It began to rain for 40 days and 40 nights from above. The firmament opened up above. Waters came down, and that ark was immersed in water. When you're baptized, you're immersed in water. You've got to be beneath water. The Lord shut them in. When they all went in there, they had one door in the side, and God shut the door. That ought to give you a picture of burial. Just like when Jesus Christ was taken off the cross with Joseph of Arimathea, where was he put? He was put into a sepulcher, and a huge stone was rolled to the mouth of it, right? When the flood was over, you're going to find Noah and his family depart that ark. That's a picture of resurrection. When a person is baptized, go read Romans chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And he would say, for as you know, when we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized, what? Into his death. And that we, uh, when we came forth after being baptized, we came forth to walk in newness of life. Noah and his family, when they come off that ark, are going to be living a new life. They're the only ones on the earth right now. The only ones. Everyone else had been destroyed and perished in the flood. Only Noah and his family come off of that ark. They were securing that ark just like the Lord's people are securing Christ. They come off to walk in newness of life. When you're baptized, you enter into a commitment that you're going to walk in newness of life. The old life is behind you. The new life is in front of you. You're still a sinner, by the way. Don't, don't misunderstand. You're as much a sinner by nature. When you come up out of the water as you was before you was put into it. <laughs> that didn't change a bit. My nature didn't change a bit when I was baptized. I was still a sinner by nature when I came out of that water as I was before I went down into it. But I'm now making a constant effort to do the very best I can not to sin practically. I want to rise to walk in newness of life. Walk in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the first thing Noah did after coming out of the ark? He builds an altar. He didn't build a house. He built an altar. You might think he'd be thinking about himself. No, he's thinking about God who just spared his life. He's going to worship God. He builds an altar. What should I do after being baptized? I want to do the very best I can to build an altar. I need to do the very best I can to live a godly life. I need the very best I can to, um, to live a God-honoring life, to, to honor him and praise him the very best of my ability. It needs to come before any natural uh, things that I might uh, have thoughts of entertaining. And what happened? When he built that altar, the Bible says that God smelled a sweet sever. When he made the offering sacrifice, God smelled a sweet sever. The word sever means scent. It was a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. Does that remind you of the Lord's baptism? When the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized, heaven opened up. And the Spirit of God descending upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the body form and shape of a dove. And by the way, what did Noah send out the second time to give him the evidence the flood was over? It was a dove. The dove came back with the olive branch, right? When Christ is baptized, heaven opens up. The voice of God rings out. The Spirit of God descends the body form and shape of a dove. The voice rings out. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. That was a sweet smell that went right up into heaven, my friends, right into the nose of God. Right? 
Oh, I'm telling you, there's, there's nothing any more God-honoring than when you come down that aisle and say, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I believe he saved me from my sins. I don't think it's Jesus plus me. It's just all Jesus, 100% Jesus. It's God from beginning to end, from first to last. There's nothing I added to it. If I got to add to it, I'm lost, I'm gone. Thank God that's not the case. I believe Jesus did it all. And then you're baptized into the water and you rise to walk in newness of life. See, when you, when you get down beneath the water, generally speaking, a person being baptized will always close their eyes, right? They will. They'll close their eyes. They go back down. They're trusting me to get them out. <laughs> Thank God you're not trusting me to get you out of the cemetery. You'd be in bad shape, I tell you that. But I can get you out of the water. I can. I've never failed yet. Now, Brother Jim Link, I know he's listening this morning. He'll remember I had to double dip him, but I got him up the second time. <laughs> I can get you out of that water. If you're afraid I can't get you out of the water, I still have enough strength to get you out of there. But I have no strength at all to get you out of the grave. But you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Jesus gets you out of the grave. <laughs> He's going to get you out. So he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. What's that a salvation to? It's a deliverance. The word saved means deliverance. All right, Peter says, and he puts this in parentheses, for baptism doth now save us. There's deliverance right now in baptism. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of good conscience toward God. Don't you want to have that? Don't you want to have a good conscience toward God? I, I do. I really do. I want to have a good conscience toward God. When I was baptized, the filth of my flesh was not removed. Now, the word filth there literally means dirt, but in a moral sense, it means depravity. And the word flesh sometimes has reference to the meat on your bones, but most of the time it has reference to your human nature. So it's not the putting away of your depravity. It's not the putting away of your human nature. Oh, you still got that. But it's the answer of a good conscience toward God, and you come up with that water, and everything looks different. Everybody who you didn't think was so handsome, they look the best you've ever seen them. <laughs> Everybody you thought missed out on the beauty contest early on there, they'd win the beauty contest there ever was. I mean, uh, everything just looks better, right? I mean, everything is better. Life is better. Everything is better. Because you've done what the Lord told you to do. You notice in that first gospel commission, the apostles were not commanded to baptize. The second commandment, the second commission... They are. They still had the same apostolic powers both times. But this time they are. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19, I thank God. He said, for God, uh, I thank God I baptized none of you but Christmas guests. For God called me not to baptize but to preach the gospel. That's another thing to show how important the gospel is. Yes, baptism is important. Gospel comes first. Baptism follows under that.